0: church our Lord said why are you persecuting me so Christ is still on the cross behold I stand at the door God. if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him
1: I love to sing your praises I'm so glad you're in my life I'm so glad you came to save us You came from heaven to earth To show the way From the earth to the cross My debt to pay From the cross to the grave And from the grave to the sky Lord, I lift your name on high Lord, I lift your name on high Lord, I love to sing your praises I'm so glad you're in my life I'm so glad you came to save us from heaven to earth you show the way, from the earth to the cross, my death to pay, from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high.
0: Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week as we study again the A Father Who Keeps His Promises, that book by Dr. Scott Hahn that gives us that 30,000-foot view of salvation history. We're going to be picking that up here in a minute. Well, that intro song was Lord, I Lift Your Name on High from the album Always What I Need by Michael James Meddy. You can find the link to his stuff on my website at www.catholichack.com. Well, I'm getting pretty anxious and nervous because in a couple of weeks from now... I am hosting a uh, the Fullness of Truth Catholic Evangelization Conference in Corpus Christi, Texas. We're featuring Dr. Scott Hahn, Dr. Michael Barber, Dr. John Bergsma, and Dr. Brant Petrie. It's called The Mystery Unveiled, A Catholic Approach to the book of Revelation. It's going to be a phenomenal conference. We've got a full Spanish track, a middle school track, and a high school track, plus child care, a movie night, praise and worship concert. We've got Eric Jenison concert, Mass with the Bishop, Confession, Adoration, and more. You don't want to miss this. If you're anywhere near Texas, you're going to want to come. Stop by fullnessoftruth.org for more information. Well, as I said, we're picking up our study again. We were We left off in chapter 6 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, where we talked about how Isaac met his wife, Rebecca, you know, and I thought that was a very interesting point that seemed to get passed by too quickly, too easily when we often talk about Isaac, and so I I stopped and paused on that, where we're going to take off, where, where we left off, where there at the end, where Isaac sees her husband standing in a field and he's meditating. So that is where we begin this week. But before we do that, let's, as always, begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory and honor and praise be to you, Almighty God. We come before you to study your Holy Word. We ask that your Holy Spirit come upon us and give us the grace we need to understand more deeply and more fully your revealed truth. We ask that you give us the grace to share this with the rest of our environments, our homes, our families, our communities, our workplaces, that we might share this great love that you have given and revealed to us all with all the world. We pray especially in this show for the repose of the soul of Ronald Poma, who died this past week. We pray for the lost and for the souls in purgatory. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. O Lord, who art ever merciful and bounteous with Thy gifts, look down upon the suffering souls in purgatory. Remember not their offenses and negligences, but be mindful of Thy loving mercy, which is from all eternity. Cleanse them of their sins and fulfill their ardent desires, that they may be made worthy to behold Thee face to face in Thy glory. May they soon be united with Thee and hear those blessed words which will call them to their heavenly home. Come, blessed of my Father, take possession of the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alright, well, picking up again in Genesis chapter 24, in verse six, we read, quote, then Isaac brought her into the tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, I thought that was very peculiar, you know, the whole being comforted after his mother's death. His mother died some three years before this event, and so I I just found that very interesting. And so when we looked at some of the commentaries, as well as the Targums, it brought out some of this additional flavor. Now, for instance, I want to just point out the fact that he takes her into her tent and then he, quote, takes her. That's them consummating their marriage, their covenant relationship. They are enjoying the one flesh union between man and woman in marriage. So, uh, this is the apocalypsis, the unveiling of this kind of a Hebrew marriage ceremony. Now, Isaac's piety is well known by this point. As we pointed out at the end of the the last show on this topic, Isaac was well known for his piety. I mean, it's obvious. For instance, he he submitted himself to the sacrifice uh, that his father Abraham was going to make of him. You know, making him carry the wood up the mountain making you know binding him and placing him on the on the altar and on the wood for sacrifice for the burnt offering. Isaac was a young man he was probably very strong and very capable by that point he certainly could have uh defended himself against the old Abraham by that point but he didn't. He submitted himself giving himself over to his father and to trusting God for the result. We see the same trust given in the fact that Isaac, he's 40 years old, and he hasn't taken a wife. No, instead he trusts his father to find him a wife. He trusts God to find him the wife. And so they found Rebecca. And Rebecca is depicted as a good woman, making good choices, you know, doing good things. She cares for this stranger that comes to visit her at the well, you know, bringing water to him and to his camel, okay, or his camels. So, he takes only one wife. Now, this, I think, is very important. You know, the fact that polygamy is allowed for in the people of Israel throughout their history doesn't make it right, or doesn't mean that it's endorsed by God. As we've shown on this show before, polygamy is always wrong in Scripture. Okay, It's always a downside. It's always a negative. It's always an evil we see how the evil line that stems from Cain comes to its evil fulfillment, its evil perfection, if you will, in the fact that Lamech takes on two wives and also commits murder, and then boasts about it, okay? That evil line, they 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 worship themselves, basically. They seek after their own name. The good line under Seth, who was born again in the image and likeness of his father, Adam, that line sought out the name of God. Okay, that line took only one wife. Now, unfortunately, as we saw, that the good that the sons of God went in to the daughters of men as they liked. Now, we saw that back in Genesis chapter 6. So, it's very interesting here that Isaac takes only one wife. Now, in uh, back in Genesis six, once the the good line became corrupted or tainted with intermarrying into the bad line and taking more than one wife in the process, then God brings the flood and He calls out Noah with his one wife and his sons with their one wives. Interesting. God is He's bringing back His purifying marriage, the covenant relationship between one man and one woman, as we saw from the beginning there in Genesis chapter 2, okay, which our Lord Jesus himself brings up again in the Gospels. So now, moving on, the Targums say, oh, one more point, the Isaac was seen here meditating in a field, a very pious thing to do. So another instance and in, in showing of his piety as being a, a good man. The Targums, which, as we've said before in the past, are the oral tradition, the oral translation from the Hebrew into the Aramaic there in the synagogues when the scrolls were opened and the people couldn't really understand Hebrew. They they spoke Aramaic in the first century there, and so uh, the Targums were their oral translations on the fly, and they, they get uh, tend to get a little colorful. Now, the Targums for this uh, verse say, quote, And Isaac introduced her into the tabernacle of Sarah his mother, and thereupon the light again shined, which had gone out at the time of Sarah's death, and he took Rebekah, and she was his wife. He loved her for he saw her works and they were upright as the works of his mother and isaac was consoled after his mother's death so there's this sense of uh of rebecca replacing sarah you know you know because uh, it's very important that we see that they are both upright they're good people all right that they try to live good lives they try to live upright lives according to the revelation that they have received thus far from the most high and it is somewhat limited to be to be sure, but they are walking in his ways, or at least trying to. Unlike the Canaanites in whom the land that they live, there is always a marked distinction between the Canaanites and uh, Isaac and Abraham, you know? They're they they, they did not even Abraham didn't even want his son to marry a Canaanite, and he made his servant promise that he would not marry a Canaanite. That's how that's how different their lives really were. Now let's move on here. On page 111 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, that's chapter 6, Dr. Scott Hahn says, quote, Happily, it was love at first sight, but sadly, Rebekah was barren. In due time, however, God granted Isaac's prayer, and his wife conceived twins. When the two sons struggled together within her womb, the Lord told Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples. Born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. That's a very interesting phrase. The elder shall serve the younger. You see, in ancient in ancient times, the firstborn was a position. Okay? It wasn't just a, a title, it wasn't just a you know, we often said, Oh, Jesus, for instance, in the gospel is the is the firstborn of Mary. And so many modern people especially Protestants will read such phrases and they will interpret from that 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 must mean that Jesus had other 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 brothers other sisters that Mary had other children no 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 the firstborn is not a reference to the uh, not the reference to any other children the firstborn is a position in in the family Okay, it brings certain responsibilities. It brings uh, a certain status. It brings a certain promise of what will come. The firstborn received the double portion blessing from his father, okay? The firstborn was expected to be the one to carry the family forward, to one to to be in charge of the house when the father was gone. And before the Mount Sinai, the firstborn was also a priestly role, okay? So it's very interesting. Now if we take up now in Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 23, we read, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, as we were saying about the firstborn, it would be kind of odd in most ancient families for a younger son to be put above an, the firstborn older son. Very odd. And yet we see this happening throughout salvation history. We see this over and over. And Dr. Hahn points out here that this is going to become a major theme in the book of Genesis and in the book of Exodus. I I have some examples here of what I'm talking about. If we were to back up Cain versus Abel. Cain was the firstborn, or at least the first one noticed or written of that we know of. Uh, Abel was younger than Cain. Cain worked in the fields. Abel was a tender of the flock. So that's in Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And yet it was Abel's offering of the first fruits of his um, fr- uh, of his flock that God accepted. And it was the the offering of the the, the harvest of Cain that God rejected. So Abel was placed above Cain there, and what happens? Cain kills Abel. Now, if we look for Ham versus Shem, the sons of Noah, there in Genesis nine. Now Ham is younger than Shem. Okay. Now Ham was not put above Shem. He was not blessed and and given a higher place above the eldest. However, he did try to steal it. He tried to circumvent the the blessing of the firstborn. Uh, f- taking it from Shem by looking upon his father's nakedness, he was trying to circumvent that. We've talked about that in the past. You can go back on the, the website and and check out those older episodes, and you'll know what we're referring to. That's found in Genesis chapter nine, verse twenty-two. Uh, moving on, Ishmael versus Isaac, as we've read just recently, and we looked at just recently how uh, Ishmael was born of of the slave, the concubine of of Sarah. And eventually, Sarah bears the son, Isaac. And when Sarah sees Isaac playing with his older brother, Ishmael, she becomes jealous. And she asks Abraham to send away the slave woman and her son because he will have no share with her son. So uh, that's a little bit of the downside of Miss Sarah there, right? Well god tells abraham even though abraham was grieved he didn't want to do this he loved ishmael it was clear but god says send him away because i'm going to bless him i'm going to take care of him send him away and he does so abraham who has other sons by the way okay he has other children from another woman he has other sons And he sends them all away. We read about all of that. Uh, Genesis chapter 21 verses 14 is when Ishmael was sent. And Genesis 25 verse 6, all the other sons were also sent away, away from his son Isaac, because Isaac was to be the only son of Abraham from a covenant perspective. Now, moving on, we're going to read about very, uh, very soon Esau and Jacob, and how Jacob, the younger son, was elevated above the elder, the firstborn, Esau. How about Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Joseph with his coat of many colors, which is going to be the favorite son of Jacob, whose name will become Israel. He will be placed above all of his elder brothers. That's uh, going to be in Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. How about Moses? You know, Moses is placed above his elder brother, Aaron. That's in, in the book of Exodus chapter 2. Now, what about the nations, the nations versus Israel in uh Exodus chapter four, we read about how the uh the God says to Moses to go to the Pharaoh and say, "Let my people, Israel go. they are my firstborn son, you know, and so even Israel is elevated above the elder of the older nations. How about David versus his own brothers? when Samuel goes to anoint the next king to replace Saul there in 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 4 through 13 he goes through all of the brothers of the sons of Jesse and comes to the youngest david who's tending the flocks another another sheep herder in in the salvation history he is placed above the elder brothers above the firstborn how about david's sons his own sons have a certain amount of turmoil you know his son solomon from his wife bathsheba is elevate, elevated above his other son, Adonijah. Okay, we read about that in First Kings chapter 1. The people of Israel, they too, are the elder brother when compared to the new Israel, the new Kahal, the new Ecclesia, the church of the living God, the church of the firstborn, the church of the Lamb of God. That's us. The universal church, the church on the whole, the Catholic church, as St. Ignatius of Antioch says in 107 AD, they, the people of Israel, are placed subordinate to the people of of the new church, okay? We read about that from St. Paul in Romans chapter 11, starting there in verse 7, it says, quote, Israel failed to obtain what it sought, the elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their feast become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. So St. Paul is alluding to this, that the elder brother of the people of God, the Israelites, the the ones who were consecrated or set apart, are now set underneath the new Israel, which is above and this is for a reason, and we will get to that in salvation history. But I just wanted to point out that we see this trend of the eldest serving the youngest, how it plays a very key and significant role in salvation history. We will get much deeper on some of those points in the coming weeks as we study and get into is get into Egypt. And we look at Joseph and his brothers. We look at the people of Israel being brought out of the land of Egypt, led by the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and by Moses and his staff and Aaron, his brother. So we'll get into all of that. But until then, we're going to keep focusing here on Jacob and Esau. Turning now to page 112 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, Dr. Hahn says, quote, Once again, God would pass over the prideful firstborn son, and continue his blessing through a worthier, younger brother. In fact, this pattern runs as a major subplot throughout Genesis, from the earlier chapters, Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, to the later ones, Jacob and Esau, Reuben and Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. This subplot will also emerge as one of the central themes in Exodus, where Israel is called to serve as the firstborn son in the family of nations, just as the firstborn son of Israel were redeemed by the Passover lamb's blood for priestly service in the twelve tribes. So you see, it's a very key point. And as I said, we're going to get deeper into that in the coming weeks. But I want you to keep it in the back of your mind. You need to start looking at scripture from these kinds of typological points because they they point you in directions that allow you to bring out more context, deeper meaning. You know, a fuller picture of of the story and the subplots and all of the twists and turns that's going on here in this salvation narrative. Now, if we go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 25, looking at verse 24, it says, quote, When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came forth red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they called his name Esau. I just thought that was an interesting, you know, image. This this little baby's like a little wolf child. He's filled with hair and he's red. And so they, they choose for him the name Esau because the name, the word itself is very close to the word for red. Now, in Haydock's commentary, he says, quote, red, hence he was called Edom, as well as from the red pottage in verse 30 and he's hairy like a skin, on what, on which account Rebekah afterwards clothed Jacob's hands and neck with the skins of the kids, or the, the goats, to make him resemble Esau. Furry robes were not unusual among the Jews. Some imagine that the name Shi'ar was given to Esau on the account of his being hairy. But Esau, but Esau was the title which he was commonly known And it meant one made perfect because he came out into the world covered with hair like a man. You know, I was, when my children were being born, I always kind of wondered are they going to come out? I've I've heard stories of kids coming out full of hair, you know, with a head full of hair and like teeth and and the whole. No, not my kids, okay? My kids are as bald as I am these days, it seems, you know, at least when they came out. So I looked for that and uh, and I didn't see it. So it would it has to be an interesting sight to see this baby come out this full of hair. And they were so astounded by it that they they named him after it. But we also see the naming of his brother, which was his twin, who came out only minutes later. We read about this in verse 26, quote, "Afterward, his brother came forth, and his hand had taken hold of Esau's heel." So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, Jacob comes after Esau. Esau's the firstborn, even if only by a few minutes. He's still the firstborn, still entitled to the position of the firstborn status. Jacob comes out grabbing the heel of his brother. This would be foreshadowing for what will come in the future. You know, in the coming years, and so because they saw this, they they named him Jacob, which basically means to 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 supplant, to wrestle. And we will see both of these things. We're going to see how Jacob is will supplant Esau out of his birthright status, and we're going to see how Jacob wrestles with a stranger. You know, the strange figure in the night, in the coming weeks here. So Jacob is a very interesting name. Not a name I think I would want to name any of my kids. You know, I'm not sure I want to name any of my kids hairy red thing or one who wrestles, one who supplants, the the wrestler, the the supplanter. Uh, these aren't just good names, you know what I'm saying, but these are fortuitous names. They both will characterize their life and we're going to see that. In verse 27 it says, quote, "When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, don't forget, God already had predicted that it would be the younger who would be over the elder, and the elder would serve the younger. But even if that's the case, Isaac loves his son Esau because he's a man of the field, because he hunts, he works, he tills the ground. And he brings back this savory game that that he just loves to eat up in the stew. But Rebecca, you know, loves her son Jacob. He's a quiet man. He, he tends to hang around the tents. Now, some commentaries say that he, he kept the flock. He was a, a sheep herder, you know. And so we see a night and day difference. But we also see a lot of typology going on here. If we were to compare Cain and Abel versus Esau and Jacob, I think we see some very cool parallels. Isaac is a type of Christ. He offered himself up to the sacrifice of his father, Abraham, just like Jesus offered up himself to the sacrifice of his father, God. Okay, well, Adam is a type of Christ, and, and Christ is the last Adam. That also must mean that Isaac is a type of Adam. And Adam bore Cain and Abel. Cain was a, a roughneck worker of the field. He brought a, a offering to God, which God rejected. Abel, his son... Was a tender uh, of the flock, okay? More gentle boy. He brought his first fruits of the sheep, and God accepted that offering, elevating the younger over the elder, right? Well, Isaac has two sons. Isaac's elder son, Esau, was a roughneck worker of the field, okay? And his youngest son, Jacob, was a tender boy living in the tents. And as some commentaries say, as we said, he tends the flock. Well, the youngest gets elevated over the elder. Well, with Adam's son, Cain and Abel, Cain gets upset. Cain kills Abel. Well, with Isaac's son, Esau gets, up, gets upset when Jacob surplants his birthright, stealing his blessing as the firstborn. And so when Isaac dies, what does Esau do? He plots the murder of his younger brother. So we see some very significant parallels there. In verse 29, it says, Once once when Jacob was boiling pottage, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red pottage, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Verse 31, Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him, And he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage and lentils, and he ate and he drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I mean, did Esau take this oath seriously? Did he understand what was at stake? These are the questions that we're going to get into the next time, because we're going to see how Esau just gave the whole kit and caboodle away. And Jacob thinking ahead, thinking of the future, would supplant. He would Jacob, his brother. That's it. That's it for today's show. So until next time, I'm praying for you. So please pray for me. God bless you. From the Catholic Underground.